morning, SunWest. You'll have to excuse me if I wind up coughing. I've, this past week, we have struggled with a bit of COVID, and I have come out of isolation on Tuesday, so I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer radioactive, and, uh, but I will be elbow bumping, not giving big hugs this weekend, okay? So if you uh, encounter me in the foyer, uh, don't be offended if I offer you my elbow in a good way best sense of the word. So, uh, you know, this illness has just swept right through our congregation. A number of our uh, staff have been having it. And you can pray for Dan Bergen right now, who's at home with pneumonia, uh, I think for the third umpteenth time. Anyways, we can all pray for uh, not only the staff, but our congregation who've struggled with this as well. Quick recap. For the past number of weeks, we've been talking about the Shalom Project, God's proactive plan to rescue or to redeem his creation. We've talked about shalom, which means harmony or peace. Shalom with God, shalom with self, shalom with others, and shalom with the world. All of these are interconnected, and they're not separated. What happens in one sphere has an impact on the others. God created us with an identity, and it it's out of this identity as his children that we are able to love God, love ourselves and then love others. As God continues to form us, uh, shape us closer to his own image and character, we increasingly see ourselves and others the way that God sees us. The way that God sees us is as beautiful creatures and creations. We are loved, we're valued, we're created with purpose. We then also see others the way that God sees them, beautiful, loved, valued, created with purpose. And as we live out God's mandate for us to love God and love others, it has a direct impact on the world around us. As Matt shared with us last week, when people ask, what in the world is going on? The Bible actually has an answer for that. But we have to go back to the beginning to really understand what's going on. God created us in his image. And so in the beginning, God created humanity to rule and to create and to have dominion and authority in his creation, which means the decisions that we make have an impact on our relationship with God and with ourselves, but also with the people around us and with the world around us. And that capacity to create has potential for good and for evil. And so when we say, what in the world is happening, we have to recognize that we don't start out there. When we're looking for answers, we have to actually start right here. And we then need to wonder, how are we having an impact on the world around us? Another quick recap from last week. The world in Greek is the word cosmos, but it means more than the cosmos out in the space or the air or the sky or the universe. It means that, but it's much more than that. The word world actually is quite complex and encompasses other things, which includes something called corporate flesh, which is the strong earthly desires that get shared corporately as a community, even as a culture, even as a society. So one of those things might be greed. One of those things might be a, a deep desire to be provisioned, which taken to the, the extreme becomes greed, right? And we hoard. We want more than what we can ever use in our lifetime. But then a moral line gets moved over time because the end 
justifies the means. And the example that Matt shared was online music, Napster, which in real life is what he called theft, right? It's a music-sharing platform that was very popular in 10, 15 years ago. And at one point, people thought that it was okay to share the music online since artists making money were insanely rich. And so it stood for reason that, hey, they don't need that money. Uh, it's okay if I trade uh, online with others. Uh, some of my favorite tunes, they're not going to suffer. The reality is it was still theft. And that's just one example of where a moral line gets moved over time, and it's an example of corporate flesh. Yet the scriptures tell us as Christ followers, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this takes us into this week's deep or deeper dive, the systemic injustice of racism. Racism is corporate flesh, where a certain sinful perception has been bought into by a group or a culture or even a nation, and as a whole, whether we are aware of it or not. Right now, many of us are very aware of the Ukrainian flag. I mean, some of us uh, have those colors on our housing in, in the lighting at night, especially. Uh, some folk have uh, flags flying out on their cars or in their homes. And many of us are aware of Russian colors these days. But this is where we have to be careful, friends. We are at the point in time where our corporate flesh or collective will can easily turn the decisions and actions of one man and blame a whole entire people group due to his actions. The same thing goes for communist China and the Chinese people of the world, of which I'm one of them. I refer to China as communist China. Not all people in China agree with nor believe in the communist regime. In fact, if you go back into my family history, the regime has imprisoned some of my family members for preaching the gospel in China. The same thing goes for Muslims. Not all Muslims are terrorists. We can make the mistake, all of us can make the mistake of painting people with the same brush. So as we peel back the layers of systems that make our world tick, uh, we can also see some of the systemic justices, injustices at play. One of those systems is religious identity. Only what appears to be a religious identity is really a racial identity that shapes our religion. It shapes our faith. And that is why we often see behaviors at odds with teachings of Jesus, such as a shooting in a black church by a white supremacist. And they might have worshipped or studied the Bible earlier in the morning, but later on someone pulls out a gun and starts going postal. This is heavy, folks. It's a little bit awkward because all of us are going to say, hey, wait a minute, Dave, I'm not a racist, and I don't support the KKK, I'm not a neo-Nazi, and I get it, but we do have to remind ourselves, friends, that racism doesn't only look like the KKK or neo-Nazism. In fact, it also looks like white versus black. It looks like Hutus versus Tutsis. It looks like English Protestants versus Irish Catholics. It looks like Japanese versus Koreans. It also looks like Israelis versus Palestinians. Friends, it looks like colonists versus First Nations. Racism is an inherent sinful part of our corporate flesh, and it 
has gone and infiltrated throughout all of humanity. It can get pretty complex and indeed very complicated. So hang in there with me this morning. As we dive a little deeper into the word, we'll see that Jesus doesn't let us live in a status quo situation. He wants us to grow. He calls us all as his followers into his kingdom. Join me as we ask Jesus to open our eyes to what he has to say to us through his word today. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see others around us the way that you, Lord Jesus, see us as your children created in your image, beautiful and loved and valued and made with purpose. Amen. So friends, racism is a universal systemic injustice. It is a human problem. Racism is corporate flesh where a certain sinful perception has been bought into by a group, a culture, even a nation as a whole, whether we are aware of it or not. One quick example is, what does Jesus actually look like? Anyone? When I grew up, I was presented with a Ken doll Jesus, or what I affectionately called Swedish Jesus. But there's nothing wrong with that image, okay? But it's one image that someone had in their mind of what Jesus looked like. But it didn't necessarily match the image of what was in my mind of what Jesus looked like. And this particular image was made common in the 1940s and 50s through a marketing campaign that went throughout World War II. It was on bookmarks, postcards, portraits that were hung in courtrooms and police stations and libraries and schools. And over time, it became known everywhere as the Protestant icon painted by a man in Chicago. Along the way, this image crowded out other depictions of Jesus in North America. Now, it's common for people to depict Jesus as a member of their culture or their ethnic group. That's natural. However, if a person thinks that's the only possible representation of Jesus, that's when we have a problem. This image of Jesus was conceived by someone who said, wait, in my mind, Jesus didn't look Swedish. He kind of looked more like me. Here's a picture of a really better looking Jesus, maybe a darker, more Middle Eastern Jesus. I call him the Tom Selleck Jesus. And he is kind of a good looking guy, isn't he? But this is more of, of what a team of British forensic scientists working with Israeli Archaeologists are saying that Jesus looked like Middle Eastern, male, a little bit darker, and he had curly hair. And given that the scriptures also state that he wasn't much to look at, maybe he had a big nose. Friends, did any of these images strike you as interesting or accurate? Totally wrong? Isn't it fascinating to think of how we react to the images? Put before us. Now, really, what questions these images actually raise, however, include questions such as this. What are the images that we've been presented with in our media, including children's books or dolls, posters, Sunday school curriculum, artwork, movies? This is just the tip of the iceberg, friends. The media in our culture has a way of forming our worldview the way that we perceive our world and how we see the world, how we actually even then see God. None of these images are necessarily wrong, 
where they go wrong is when we think that our image, our image, is the only reality that exists or the only reality that should exist. In order to understand how far we've deviated as a human race, we need to see where God is leading us and what is God's vision for humanity. And so we go to the scriptures. Revelation 7 says this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great fervor, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Wow, what a picture. And all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and language will worship God at his throne. We also get a picture of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the light or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Wow, what an amazing, amazing image. Friends, God's vision for humanity is one of unity. All humanity, worshiping in spirit and truth, the one true God. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. What an amazing picture of worship and unity. All of humanity experiencing shalom with God, shalom with one another, shalom with the world around them. And this is the world that God intends. All of creation shall bow down and worship him. God's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the vision that God has for humanity, one of shalom, harmony between us and God, shalom between ourselves and others, and shalom with the world around us. And this brings us back home to us as individuals. What is our part to play in this? How do our own values and thoughts and actions have an impact on the world around us? Friends, this has been a question asked literally for millennia. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Or if you have a Bible app, or you can just follow up on the screen with me. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Well, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said to him, do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself and he said, well, Jesus, um, 
who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, and he also passed by on the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bills run higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say has a neighbor, was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. You know, the widely recognized idiom, Good Samaritan, it originated from this actual parable. A Good Samaritan represents a person who does a good deed for someone in need, particularly when he hasn't been asked for help and there's no reward for doing so. And yet something has gotten lost in the 2,000 years since the parable was first told. In the U.S., Good Sam is an organization much like AMA or AAA. Does anyone understand what AMA or AAA is? It's an auto club here in Alberta, Alberta Motor Association. If you're a member of it, that's great. They give you towing, you know, they give you maps and tour books. They even have travel insurance. You can get your driver's license done there at the registry. Good Sam is an auto club much like AMA. It's an app name for such a subscription-based auto service. That's really actually even cheaper than AMA. So if I was in the States, maybe I'd join Good Sam. The problem with the name Samaritan is that we don't get the same connotation that Jesus' story pushes on his audience's ears. We don't really understand what Samaritan meant to the Jews of Jesus' day. And we've lost the impact of the story. What does the word Samaritan mean to you or to me? It doesn't actually just mean nice helper, the way it's come to mean in pop culture. I mean, it has that meaning, but over time, we have to understand that the meaning has been lost. And in Jesus' days, the Samaritan Jewish people didn't associate with one another. In fact, both groups eyed one another with suspicion. They looked at each other as heretical and as lesser than. And so conflict and mistrust and hate existed between these groups of people. They didn't live with one another, and they avoided each other if they could, and they, if push came to shove, they thought less of the other. In fact, they hated each other. Is there anyone in your own life that you can maybe relate to in that way? Because the question I have to ask is, has humanity changed really at all? over 2,000 years? Do we still see prejudices and segregated neighborhoods in our day? Do people still avoid others based on all sorts of self-righteous criteria? When was the last time you've driven through an Indian reservation? And what's the first thing that goes through your mind when you see 
in the news, the First Nations. I mean, some of the things that go through my mind are like, this guy's an addict or a druggie or he just wants money. Can't they, get, can't they find work? And I know all of us or most of us, some of us even, have had that thought. In Jesus' parable told to a Jewish audience, a Jewish man was stripped. He was beaten and he was robbed and half led, uh, left half dead lying in the road. And he was ignored by a passing priest. He was ignored by uh, a Levite, a temple assistant, both of whom should have been friendly to their fellow Jew. The least likely person to help him was the Samaritan. But he was the only one who stopped and helped being a true neighbor. Translate that to today's circumstances here in Nindapur or Sundance or even Lake Chaparral. Just somewhere local here. And let's say a Sunwester was on their way to church this morning, walking through Fish Creek Park just down the road. Only they were jumped, and then they were beaten and robbed and left half dead lying in the path. And the path was between Chaparral and Sundance, you know, off Sun Valley Boulevard there. And in Jesus' parable for today, Pastor Matt or myself or Pastor Kendall would have passed the Sunwester lying on the pathway. Oops. I can't stop. I've got to make the 815 prayer meeting this morning. Right? And then so we cross over onto the other side. Except right behind us is Trent Burstad, who's the chair of the leadership team, our version of the board. And he's like, I've got to make this meeting too. Oh, oh man. There's a guy there. Son Wester, oh man. But I've got to make this meeting. See ya. Walks right past him. Can you imagine Trent doing that? Sorry, Trent. You're not here to defend yourself. Now, who would be the least likely person to help out our Sun West friend? Who would be that least likely person in your mind? Someone homeless? Someone from a First Nations extraction? Who is that other person? Maybe a Muslim? A Buddhist? Someone with a turban? The force of the parable is that when Jesus told it to them was that the most unlikely person came to help. And now is that it challenges his audience to consider what was going on in our own world. What's going on in our own world? It hasn't changed. What is the least likely person to help? And that person was the true neighbor. And Jesus says, now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise when loving our neighbor goes beyond doing the good deed. I mean, that's a very important part of it, but it goes way beyond that. Jesus challenges us, of course, to do the good and sacrificial deed. I don't want to belittle that. But he also challenges us to rehumanize the other, capital O, whoever that other is. Jesus is saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't let the labels fool you. Don't let fear of the unknown, friends, get in the way. Especially when you're showing love to another person. 
Now, conflict and mistrust and hate still exist today between groups of people. We still see prejudices and segregated neighborhoods. We've got Indian reservations just outside of Calgary. Those are segregated neighborhoods, friends. People still avoid others based on all sorts of criteria. Income, profession, hobby, where we live. What about skin color? The food that we eat, some of it can be pretty stinky, and I bring some pretty stinky-looking, funny-looking foods to the staff room some days, and they're like, what in the heck is that? I'm like, it's bitter melon. It's awesome. Chinese people love it. Anyone know what bitter melon is? No? No one does. I'm going to serve it to you when you next come to my house, and you're going to love it. Well, actually, you're probably going to hate it, but you know what? Ethnicity is also a barrier. Languages that we speak, even with an accent, or the clothes that we wear, it marks us as different. You know, back in my university days at the UFC, some time ago, when I still had hair, one of my old girlfriends was a pig farmer's daughter from Rocky Mountain House. We had been dating for a couple of years, things were starting to get serious, and we were considering what was life going to look like after graduation. And things got serious enough that her mom then asked her, "Um, dear, what would your kids look like? Innocent question enough, but the follow-up statement gave the question a little bit more context. She said, honey, you can date one, but just don't marry one. Yeah, ouch. And when she told me that, that was shared with her, I knew our relationship probably wasn't going to go the distance and stand the test of time or the test of building a family. And things eventually ended. Fast forward a few years later, and I met Charlene, who I've now married at the UFC. And this time I was in my last year. She was in her first year of studies. And we'd been dating a little bit. And her brother was getting married. And he said, you know, we might as well invite this Dave character to the wedding. I think he's a keeper. Thanks, Don. Appreciate it. So Charlene's tribe is at her parents' home in Cochrane on the family grounds there, around a huge family table. It looks like a Chinese restaurant table, you know, one of those big, giant round tables. Her aunts and her uncles and her cousins and Charlene's opa, which is her dad's dad, who's uh, Ukrainian, Russian, German extraction. She says, he says, Charlene, you know he's Chinese, right? I'm like, crap. Thought bubble, expletive. Here we go again. Yes, Opa, I know he's Chinese. He could have heard a pin drop in the room. Opa's next question out loud at the table, what will your children look like? Oh. Charlene's response, without missing a beat, Opa, they will all be beautiful. Oh my goodness, I fell in love with that woman all over again, right at that moment. In that moment, Charlene showed me what it meant to be a neighbor. To be welcomed and accepted and valued and loved, no matter what I looked like. No matter what ethnicity I'm extracted from. I was seen as beautiful and loved and valued and made with purpose. She rehumanized me right at that table as all the eyeballs were on me. And it set a tone. From that day on, Opa treated me as if I were family. 
Charlene's response is what I think God is thinking as he looks at his children. They are all beautiful, loved, valued, made with purpose. Jesus pushes the question beyond who is my neighbor. And the real question that he pushes into our chest is to whom is God calling us to be a neighbor? Or even who are we to be neighborly with? Or even to whom is God calling us to show mercy? Friends, Jesus doesn't let us stick with sentiment or even good intentions. He doesn't let us justify ourselves by saying to ourselves, I'm, I'm not racist. He wants our actions to demonstrate our love. Words and good intentions are not enough. It's only by looking at the actions of a person that we get a glimpse of their true character. Am I right? Actions speak louder than words. And they speak much louder than any label. So don't judge a person by their title, by their appearance. Instead, let us ask ourselves, to whom is God wanting us to show mercy today? Only the folk who I live beside? Only the folk who I work with? Only the folk who look like me or smell like me or dress like me? Friends, just this past week, as we were filling up at a gas station at our local Circle K, just close to our home, a woman pulled up behind us and asked Charlene, hey, could you help me fill my tank? I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw that this nice Mercedes was pulling up behind us. <laughs> and she looked middle class, upper middle class, but she intimated that she needed to get away from her husband who was abusing her. Now, she had a hijab on, which meant she had a head covering. And Charlene said, where are you going? I'm trying to drive to my mosque for safety, she said. Shark came over and said, hey, Dave, we're going to fill up this lady's gas tank. She's on the run from her husband. I said, okay, no problems. No problems with that at all. After helping her fill up, the lady drove up to my side of the car because we had parked. And she said, sir, thank you so much. Thank you. And she might have seen the cross hanging on our rearview mirror. I said, please take care. Please be careful, inshallah, which in Arabic means as God wills. Friends, let's not be fooled by labels. Let's not judge a book by its cover. Let's be neighborly to anyone that God puts in our path. Jesus' parable suggests that what Jesus teaches elsewhere, that everyone who shows mercy will also receive mercy. And it raises for us the question, to whom does God want us to show mercy today? So as we consider how God is bringing shalom to the world around us, let us remember that we, each of us, friends, have a vital role to play in helping God's will be realized here on earth as it is in heaven. We each have a role to play as God's vision for humanity becomes more real every day. Where we rehumanize people and go beyond their labels, their covers, and we join the movement forward where every tongue, every tribe and nation comes down and bows before our King Jesus and calls him Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Lord God,
your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you that we get to partner with you in this, yet it doesn't all rest on our shoulders. All creation groans, anticipating your new creation. And as you transform us, you also transform the world around us. Thank you for saving us, redeeming us, rescuing us, and calling us your own. So Lord, as we join you in your mission to rescue our world, help us to consider to whom shall we be a neighbor? To whom do you want us to show mercy today? Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Dave, for your words this morning. Um, that question of who, who are you being called to show mercy to? If you don't have an answer to that question, I would, I would encourage you to pray into it. Because that means maybe you walked right past them and you didn't even see them. Who is God calling you to show mercy to? Pray into that question. If you know the answer to that question, pray into how you can show mercy. People on our prayer teams have come forward. If you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I've missed them. If you just want someone to pray with you to pray into that or turn to someone next to you. If you're watching from online, you can email prayer at someoneschurch.com. Someone would love to connect with you and pray with you. This is an important question. It's not a question that any of us gets to skip. God is calling us to show mercy, to be unified, to bring redemption. And we have a responsibility as his hands and feet to bring his kingdom on earth. So I want to pray this morning to close. And then we'll be dismissed from here. God, thank you that not everyone is like me. You are so creative. You are so diverse. And we see that in your creation and in your people. So we pray where that diversity and that creativity, if there's places where that makes us uncomfortable, that you would help us confront that, that you would redeem that, that you would address those areas in our heart where we're not showing mercy. Your heart is for unity, God. We pray that you would help us bring unity to the world around us, to us living on Treaty 7. What does that mean, to bring unity to the world around us, to our city, to our neighbors, to the people we work with, to the people we go to school with, to the people in our families, to the people who are coming into our homes or we're meeting or encountering. We pray that we would have your eyes for the people around us and your heart and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.